Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Bill was recorded on December 8th, 2022. My name is Bill, and I am an adult child and a fellow traveler. You know, this is, um, thank you very much for inviting me to Voices Across America. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about my childhood trauma and then, of course, how I eventually got into the program of ACA. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because when I was growing up, there was trauma in my life, but I never thought it would affect me. You know, because I was aware of it, I thought because just that alone would be enough to make so that it wouldn't actually cause me any trouble or harm as I was um, going through life. I'm in New York, so occasionally you'll hear sirens, so I apologize if you do. <laughs> So, um, so my childhood was not, you know, it was not, it was not a paradise. Most of us are coming in here because of childhood trauma. And I came in here because of the same thing. My, I had no security whatsoever, none, as far as emotional, physical love. Um, my stepfather was a, a violent drunk, uh, who was very bad with money. Uh, we found ourselves moving from place to place, uh, sometimes as quickly as every three months. Sometimes we might last in place a year. It was uh, pretty bad. Um, he was violent, cheated on my mother, beat her. Um, and um, it was just total chaos for me. Um, I, I never was in a place long enough to actually make any friends. I was usually someplace for maybe, I don't know, just long enough to start getting to know people's names before I had to leave. Uh, I'll give you one example of my childhood. Um, you know, when I was nine years old, it was, it was a not unusual for me to come home and either the power would be out, electricity would be off, the phone wouldn't be working, or sometimes there'd be an eviction notice on the door. And I'd be the first person home to deal with it. And for a nine-year-old to have to deal with something like that, you know, my job was basically to call one of my, call my mother up. Nine out of ten times, I know my dad, my stepfather, was. he was awesome. I called him cheating a couple of times, which is pretty traumatic for a kid. But, you know, I would call her up and tell her what was going on, and she would tell me what to do. And, um, you know, one time I came home and there was an eviction, well, not only an eviction, notice, but the door was locked and I couldn't get in. And I talked to one of the guys, um, and I said, listen, I need to get stuff out for school. And uh, he let me in. And I had talked to my mother first, and she told me to get her jewelry and stuff like that so she would have her jewelry. And I got my um, gym uniform and some clothes to wear so I would have clothes to wear to go back to school. And for me, going back to school meant at nine years old, um, we ended up in Trenton, New Jersey, and I was sleeping on the couch. And for me to go to school, finish out that uh, finish out that, that uh, semester or whatever, uh, I would have to get up at five o'clock in the morning, grab a bus out of Trenton at 530 
which would take me into Princeton around six o'clock, catch another bus in Princeton around 6.10 that would take me into Kendall Park around 7, 7.10, 7.15, whereupon I would catch a school bus to take me to school. And I would have to do the whole thing in reverse. And the first time I took that bus, my mother came with me. and She talked to the school bus, the driver, uh, the bus driver the entire time. And I realized what she was doing. She was flirting with the bus driver to make sure that someone was looking out for me. Because at nine years old, I was doing this on my own. And when we got to uh, Kendall Park, where I was being dropped off to catch the school bus, my mother told me, did you remember everything that you saw? And I said, yeah, I saw it, remember. And she goes, because you're going to have to find your own way home. And she gave me enough money to take the bus. And, and I was on my own. And I had to find my own way home from there. Basically, taking a nine-year-old kid, taking three buses to get home. And that's what I did. And that's kind of what my life was like. It was about a lot, of, a lot of trauma, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and things just kind of, I just had to deal. Um, you know, and how I dealt was basically, um, I disassociated. The only things I remember about my childhood, and I, I, when I hear people talk about their childhoods, it seems like they're so clear and so vivid and they have such great memories. The only thing I remember about my childhood was basically the really, really, really scary things and the occasional high points that I would have. But other than that, it was a complete blur. I don't remember anything, just this, this fear and the pain and the occasional high points that didn't come that often. Um, a lot of times we would find ourselves in a situation where we would lose everything. I mean, literally lose everything. And uh, we have to pick back up and I lose, I have, I have no lot. Most of my photos from my childhood are, are missing. They're gone. I have no idea what they look like. And um, there were times when things got so bad, they would drop me off at my grandmother's. And I would be dropped off at my grandmother's at a young age. And I would just, I wouldn't understand what they were doing. I thought they were just, I thought I had done something wrong. And they were just dropping me off and leaving me. I thought I was a bad kid and I had done something wrong. And sometimes they leave me for a week. Sometimes they leave me for a month. The longest time they left me at my grandmother's was two years. And um, I remember one Thanksgiving. It was so bad. My mother came and got me. And she took me to a hotel, a seedy hotel. And she had like this little snack table. And she had like some turkey and like this canned cranberry and some stuffings. And I realized she wanted me near her for Thanksgiving because apparently that was the only thing she had. And, and I remember having Thanksgiving dinner with my mother in this, in this seedy little motel room, having really crappy food, but she wanted me near her. I have no idea how bad things were, but they must've been pretty bad for her to want to do that. Um, eventually, um, my, my stepfather had gotten so violent at one point that uh, at 16, I tried to stand up to him to stop him from beating my mother. And what he did was basically he just beat the crap out of me and it beat her even worse. And then afterwards, my grandmother, my mother said, um, if that ever happens again, Bill, please, please call the police. And then uh, soon after that, we had gotten rid of him. Um, 
I wish I could say that was the only thing that happened to me, but there was also some other things that happened to me. There was some, some sexual abuse, not from any family members. Um, one of the things that was happening was that I was seeking love. My, my mother was so busy dealing with my stepfather and all the other things going on, she didn't have time for me. And I didn't want to cause her problems. So what I did was I was just quiet. I behaved myself. When, when my stepfather came home, I just went to my room and, and pretended like nothing was going on. And I didn't listen to anything. I just went in my room. I didn't want to give her trouble. I didn't want to give her a problem. You know, I was the kid that went to school, basically a latch kid, you know, hair, a mess, clothes, maybe clean, maybe not. But, um, you know, when he, I was, I would be seeking love from, I was looking for a mother figure. And what was happening with women who were healthy understood that I was looking for a mom. With the women who weren't healthy didn't understand that. And they thought I was looking for something else. And it causing a lot of problems. Uh, I became so fearful of women that I couldn't even ask a girl out for a date. And I didn't voluntarily lose my virginity until I was 21. So it's that type of thing. So I took all that stuff into adulthood. I managed to trick myself out of four colleges in two years. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I eventually um, ended up homeless. Uh, couldn't function very well. And um, a lot of bad things happened during that period. And eventually I got into AA. And when I came into AA, you know, I thought that was the problem. I thought that alcohol and drugs were the problem and that would fix everything. So I came into AA and I got sober and I did the work in AA. I did the work in AA. I did the steps. I bore down. I had a, I was one of those guys that was a big book thumper because I was so desperate for relief. I clung so tight to my sobriety and it wasn't working. I mean, I wasn't drinking anymore. I wasn't doing drugs or anything like that, but I still was in situations that I didn't understand why things weren't working. My relationship with people just didn't click. I didn't know how to connect with people, first off. I had no interpersonal relationships. I, I never had a long relationship. I never, I never let people know who I was because to do that, you'd be vulnerable. And anyway, no one stayed in my life long enough for it really to matter. You know, so why bother? My job was just to survive whatever situation I was in as, as, as best I could, to find a safe person to basically bond with as my protector and basically keep me out of trouble and make sure no one hurt me. That was my job. That was the thing I did to survive. My, my, my way of survival was to find people to protect me, find people to, who would, who I could not be alone. I didn't want to be alone, yet I never had anybody around that would be around with me on a continuous basis because I was never anywhere long enough. I was always the newcomer. I was always the stranger. I was always the outsider. So I learned how to be a people pleaser. Whatever you needed me to be, I would be that so you would like me. And then I realized, well, maybe if I have something to do, if I was useful, 
then maybe you wouldn't leave me either. So what I started doing was I started fixing people. You know, you got a problem, I can fix it because I learned how to fix problems. Because as a child, I was the first one that had to deal with the problems at the house. So one of the things I learned how to do was I never panicked. Okay, because emotions don't help you in a panic, in a bad situation. You just bear down, you just figure out what the solution was, and you did the solution. And I found that people found that was a trait that was very admirable. They wanted to talk to me. If they had a problem, they would come to me and I'd tell them what the solution was and I'd fix them. And I figured, well, that's a good way to pe- people come to me. People like me. They would come to me and basically ask me for help. And if I'm helpful, I'm useful. If I'm useful, people will hang around. But what I discovered over time was after you fixed a problem, what else do you have to offer? I had nothing else to offer. And they would leave me. And once again, I was perpetuating the very same thing that happened to me as a child. But now I was abandoning myself because I wasn't being my true self. I was being whoever you wanted me to be. But even that wasn't enough for you to stay around. So it was even harder. It was even painful. I mean, what do I need? What did I need to do to have people stay with me? To not leave me, to not abandon me. So You know, I'm like, okay, relationships are horrible. I kept picking the wrong women. I kept picking the women that were broken, you know, broken women. Either either were suffocating codependents that clung to me because I was desperate for attention and love, or they were just the opposite, like ice princes that didn't have any time for me at all and basically didn't have emotional feelings toward me. Or they were just simply broken, very, very broken. None of those relationships were. So, you know, I decided to go to Al-Anon, you know, because I had problems with relationships, right? That's where you go, go to Al-Anon. So I went to Al-Anon and, you know, I learned a few things there. But what I really learned was uh, when they all started talking about that alcoholic, they all kind of glanced at me, <laughs> you know, and I really didn't feel all that welcome when they did that because I couldn't identify with their anger with alcoholics because I was the alcoholic. So I hung in there for a little while and eventually I just left. I tried to go to a couple of double winner winner meetings, which were helpful, but you know, eventually they stopped listing them in it is in Al-Anon. And I went back on my own and I went to some therapy and stuff like that. And it seemed like the therapist always had like, you know, I remember the therapist so telling. My therapist says, So uh let's talk about your mother. And my response to that was, no, we're not talking about my mother. She's off limits. Nowhere we're going to talk about her. My mother was a saint. We're not going to talk about her. She did not, absolutely nothing wrong. And I'm sure the therapist sat down and said, mother issues in the notebook. <laughs> you know? And I didn't realize at the time, but it was true. You know? Um, and then things got really bad. Um, one of the things that happens to you when you're sexually abused is you tend to be very sexualized as a human being. In all my relationships, I didn't know how to relate to women in a, um, I didn't know how to relate to women at all because every woman I had dealt with um, didn't deal with me the way you should deal with each other. So I just thought that was the norm. And I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship with women. Without flirting, I became highly sexualized and a flirt. 
And I didn't know how not to have an inter- interaction with a woman without flirting. And that caused me all kinds of problems because unfortunately, a lot of women misunderstood what I was doing. I was just trying to be, I was just trying to talk to them and whatever. But unfortunately, it came across like I wanted their attention. And a lot of women misunderstood that. And they thought I wanted to date them. But I didn't want to date them. I just wanted them to be friends. But it came across wrong. And eventually what happens is they would get upset with me and angry because they thought I was leading them on and not actually asking them out on a date. So it got really bad and it, they started disliking me. And I felt, you know, I tried to, you know, just like I tried to figure out how to not to drink, I've tried to figure out how to have a relation, how to talk to women. And I've made up all these rules. You know, don't make eye contact. Only keep it to three sentences. You know, all these things I try to create to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with a woman that wasn't something that they would confuse. And um, it didn't work. And at one point, I got to the point where I was so miserable. I was just beating myself up so much and hating myself so much. And I didn't like the person I saw in the mirror and all these other things. That I was like, this, I was in emotional, spiritual pain. And I was like, this is nothing is working. Nothing is working. And I want to drink. I want to just go out and just whatever. I don't want to do this anymore. Nothing's working. And I was at the end of my rope. And I, my sponsor, I, had, I, I started crying. I prayed to God. I said, I need my sponsor. But I hadn't talked to my AA sponsor for a long time. And uh, I went to a meeting. And lo and behold, my sponsor was uh, living in Fire Island, but for some reason decided to come to Brooklyn for that summer. And I walked into my AA meeting, and there was my sponsor. And I walked over to him. And I said, I'm in trouble. I need help. And he said, okay, we'll do some work. And he took me back to his place. He was staying there for the entire summer. And he listened to what I was talking to him about. And he just shook his head. And he goes, listen, I want you to read something. And he handed me the laundry list. And I read the laundry list. And I looked up at him. And I said, why haven't you shown me this before? And he said, you weren't ready for it. And he goes, I think you're ready for it now. And he goes, I want you to find a meeting. I want you to start going to a meeting. And he told me that on the Sunday. And by Tuesday, I went to my first ACA meeting. And the ACA meeting was the Tuesday. I'm going to promote myself. <laughs> the Tuesday toolbox. Okay. And I went into that meeting. And I sat down. And these people started talking about trauma. I couldn't tell people about the trauma of my childhood, you know, because the response was kind of like, it was not appropriate, most of the responses. But I sat in this room full of other people, and they were talking about the things I didn't want to talk about. And they were talking about it out loud. And I realized, you know, I'm not alone. Just like I wasn't alone with the other things, I wasn't alone here, with the childhood trauma. So I sat in the room, and I listened, and I started sharing. And I got to be honest, I never, whenever I talked about in, in any fellowship I was in, recovery fellowship, whenever I talked, I always talked about how to do things, what the, the literature says, but I never talked about my personal experience with any type of the recovery I was discussing. It was always third person, someone out there, this is what you should do. But in ACA, I started talking about my experience. I started talking in the first person instead of third person. I remember one day I was sitting there, I was talking about some trauma in my childhood. 
And I just broke down. And I just started sobbing. Just that sloppy, blubbering, snot-nosed sobbing. And no one said a word. They just let me cry. And I couldn't believe it. I was so embarrassed. You never cried. You never showed emotion. You never let them know they had gotten to you. And here I was, sobbing in front of a room of strangers. And, uh, and I realized I was finally that child. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. That, and now I realize it was me. That kid who went through all of that trauma, I had totally disassociated those feelings of who I was. And now I'm sitting in the room full of all these other people who have experienced the same thing, and I was acknowledging it. And not only was I acknowledging it, I was weeping for this kid, for what he had to deal with, what he had to go through, what he had to live through. And it was me. And I had one of many breakthroughs, you know, but it just, I was so, I was shaking. I was physically shaking from the experience. I was shaking and I couldn't stop. It was, it was like it was outside in the cold and I couldn't stop shaking. I couldn't stop. The emotion was that strong. And I realized I needed to continue to come back. And I came in. You know, and I started trying to do the work, and you guys were wonky as heck. You know, repairing? What the hell are you guys talking about? Repairing? <laughs> hey, what the hell is that? You know, and I'm listening to you guys. So, like, you know, first I thought you guys were a cult, but then, you know, I related too much to what you guys were saying. But I was like, you guys were wacky, you know, repairing and all this other stuff, you know, left-handedness and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, you know what? So I'm going to repair it myself. So I... Did it on my own. And of course, I did exactly what they told you not to do because my inner parent was not my loving parent. <laughs> my inner parent was my critical parent. And my critical parent was my mother because she didn't have time to guide me along the path that all other parents, which she didn't have time. Emotionally, she didn't have the energy. So what she would do with me as a critical parent was if I did something wrong, she would criticize me in an attempt to educate me not to do that. She was doing the best she could. So that was the parent in my head. Whenever I did something wrong, I beat myself up. And I tried to reparent my inner child with that parent. And the results were cataclysmic. It was horrible. And I just felt worse. You know, and I just didn't get it. And um, this this will play later. I have a son. He doesn't live with me. He lives in Australia. But guess how I was parenting him? <laughs> I was parenting him the same way I was parented. Critical parent. Stick and carrot. You know, and uh, it wasn't working. You know, I remember I, I said to him once, I said, listen, uh, son, if you get straight B's, I'll come visit you. And he didn't get straight B's. So I said, you know, son, I'm sorry. 
you didn't get straight B's, I'm not going to come visit you. And all of a sudden, like the phone dropped. And his mother got on the phone. She said, what did you just say to your son? And I said, well, I told him that if he didn't get straight B's, I wouldn't come visit. And she said, what are you saying? Are you an idiot? You don't do that to a kid. You don't do that. And I was like, why not? <laughs> I mean, that's how I was brought up. And she said, she's out in the yard crying. And I said, well, well, you know, tell him to come back to the phone and I'll explain. She goes, no, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to talk to that kid. No. And she just hung the phone up. And I didn't think I did anything wrong. I mean, that's how I was parented. You know, and I realized that's not how you parent. And I realized there's a different way of reparenting. And it was the way I was always craving from all those women I used to walk up to. And that was, you encourage. You, you basically give love and encouragement and confidence. And you basically tell them whatever they do, it's good. It's fine. And if you do criticize, you do it generally. You don't criticize. You actually explain the options that they have that they can take. And in doing that and reparenting my son that way, I realized that's how I reparent myself. Instead of beating myself up, instead of doing all those things, instead I can just be gentle with myself. Instead of every time I do something wrong, you know, inter inter interaction or something like that, because I was fumbling on. I didn't know how to do healthy relationships with anyone, with friends, with work, whatever. I didn't know how to do that. So instead of beating myself up all the time, every time something didn't work out the way I wanted to work, I started to say, that's okay, Bill. It's okay. You, you know not to do that. <laughs> so let's figure out what to do right. And that's what I started doing. You know, I figured that out and I, and I got through that. And then, you know, I started looking at some other things about myself. You know, one of the things um, I'm looking at, I'm going to look at my notes here real quick. Uh, yeah, I began to accept my feelings. Uh, I no longer denied them. Uh, what I decided to do is start being grounded in the present because I was actually still a prisoner of my past. I always, like I said before, I thought that if I knew what happened to me as a, as in my in my childhood, all that trauma, trauma, and everything else, that it wouldn't affect me as an adult. But now I could see how it was affecting me, and the way I could see how it was affecting me, whenever I was in a situation that caused me discomfort and disease, I would feel my back would tense up in a knot. And I began to realize that was a sign that I was being triggered by something. Triggered by something that was probably, that remind me of something that occurred as a child. You know, and that's where I came across that the term, the issues in the tissues. You know, so that when my back tenses up, I have to stop and pause and say to myself, what's happening here? What is triggering my inner child? that I need to take a look at and resolve and basically say it's okay. You know, I figure out what's, what happened in my childhood that this is now reminding me of and I'm reacting to it. You know, and a lot of times it's when someone criticizes me or tells me I was wrong or whatever, whatever it was. And I realize, wait a second, you know, this isn't bad. This is someone telling me something. This is not maybe punishment or anything else or, Suddenly, I, I, this person no longer loves me or whatever. This is just someone letting me know that, hey, there's a better way of doing this. 
And I started listening to that, that my body. And I realized that my body would tell me when I was in trouble. My body would tell me when I needed to sit down for a second and pause and reparent myself and take a look at what was going on. Because if I didn't, I would go down that, that spiral. So I started doing that. And one of the other things I started noticing was I was still concerned about abandonment. And that's why I kept picking all these women that were damaged. Because I didn't, I figured if they needed me, they wouldn't leave me. And I realized that didn't work. I also realized that my friends were upset with me. I was always helping people, you know, in service, everyone, you know, everyone in, in programs, they knew I did service constantly. Because if you're, if you're, if someone, if you can, if you're, if people need you and if you're, and you're useful, people want you. So I was always doing service, always constantly doing service. And I didn't realize that service is not connection. Service is not establishing a relationship. And what I began to do is I started to hate people in program rooms because of what happened. If anything went wrong, they would come to me and ask me to fix it. And you know what? I was in those rooms to have to, to be fixing everyone else. I was in the rooms to be fixed myself. And I started to resent the rooms. And I realized that I had to change the way I behaved. And I realized the reason why I was always doing things like that was I realized as a teenager, my inner teen, the way my inner teen protected my inner child was whenever there was trouble, whenever there was danger, when there was a my inner team would step up and take control because if I was in control, I couldn't get hurt. That was my thinking. If I can control the situation, if I could control what was going on around me, then no one could hurt me because I'm protecting. So I found myself always taking control. If there was a problem going on in any situation, work, family, friends, whatever, I would step up and fix the problem. Not just because I could, but because I, it was just, I couldn't help myself. That's just what I did. And what happened was people would start resenting me because I wasn't supposed to be in control. <laughs> I wasn't leading whatever thing, whatever was going on. I wasn't the person leading the situation. I was supposed to be one of the, the junior people when, you know, I was supposed, it wasn't even my job, but I would take that job. I would, I would actually insert myself into a situation, push the people who were supposed to be handling it out of the way and take on the responsibility myself. And then be upset because now people were coming to me because I took responsibility. So it was a lose-lose situation. You know, people resented me and then I resented people. So I realized I had to stop trying to control the situations. I had to let my inner team know that that's not what I need to do. Controlling situations is not helpful. So I had to start letting go of that. And I had to start sitting back and letting people do their thing, make mistakes. And I had to allow myself just to, to be okay with that, which is very difficult. Uh, as far as relationships are concerned, I had a wall around me that was concrete, rebar, you name it. You know, I wouldn't let anyone in. And if anyone came in, as soon as they started getting close, I'd push them away. Because you let people in, 
they see your weakness and they can use your weakness against you. So I was, um, at one point I wasn't working for like nine years. I had lost my job in a certain industry and I wasn't working for nine years. And a friend of mine came up and said, oh, Bill, so what are you doing about this? And I said, well, I'm looking for work. He goes, well, how are you looking for work? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. He goes, why don't you ask people to help you? Why don't you tell people you're looking for work? And I was like, oh, you don't do that. That's not what you do. You know, because I, I was brought up in a way that you, you did everything yourself. You never asked for help. You never asked for help. And he goes, no, Bill, ask for help. Your friends want to help you. You've helped all your friends. They want to help you. Let them help you. And I was like, yeah, 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 sure, whatever. So I went to Facebook and I posted a uh, post on Facebook. Hey, listen, I'm looking for work. Anyone got anything? <laughs> that was me reaching out. And within minutes, a friend of mine reached back out to me and said, hey, Bill, listen, there's this, there's a person. They might want to, you know, I'll, I'll set everything up for you. Um, you know, just let me know and I'll give you a call back. And this was one of my old sponsees coming back to help me. And uh, I answered, I listened to him and I, and I got a job. And he said, thank you for letting me help you. And then I realized that my other friends, you know, I started sitting down talking to them. You know, I just started having conversations with my friends, you know. Before, whenever I had conversations with people, it was always like teacher to student, adult to child. It was never peer to peer. It was always me up here, them down here, and me always talking down to them. And that's not a friendship. That's not a relationship. And what I started realizing was, well, actually, what I started doing was I actually started talking to people. You know, when they asked me how I was doing, I, would, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't. Well, initially, I would trauma bond. Okay. That's what you do, right? You, I did that in AA. I talked about my alcoholism. So let me talk about my trauma, childhood trauma. So we can sit down. And I, you know, people would start kind of pushing back. <laughs> you know, they were like, you know, a little too much information, Bill. So I was like, okay, so that doesn't work. So what should I talk about? You know, and I realized, yeah, why don't you just talk? You know, so what I started doing with my friends is I started talking to my friends about stuff that's going on. You know, yeah, I went to the museum the other day. Oh, what, yeah, what museum did you go to? And suddenly I was having conversations with people that were not about fixing them, not about fixing myself, not about trauma or anything else. It was about having a conversation with someone that basically was just a conversation that we were talking about things we had in common and talking about things that we both liked. And suddenly my friends warmed up to me. Suddenly my friends were like, you know, it was, it was a, the relationship became deeper, richer. And, 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 and I want to say, but love it. <laughs> you know, we liked each other. They liked me. For me. Laws and all. And I just suddenly it was like a whole new sensation. You know, so, you know, this has been an ongoing thing for me. Right now I'm working, you know, it's interesting too, because uh, I read the Red Book. I'm, re I'm reading the Red Book. The Red Book was, wow. <laughs> I read three paragraphs. I have to put it down. <laughs> it's like that. You know, I'm doing the love and I'm doing, uh, I'm working with individuals right now in small groups, you know, like five or 10 people. And we sit down, we read three pages, and then we could do the homework. 
and, we, and the Loving Parent Guidebook is what I'm working with right now, which is awesome. Okay, I've done the step book, you know, and it never fails to amaze me what's how much change. I've been in program 30 years, 29 years. And in the four years, or actually six years, I've been in ACA. There had I, I had gotten to a point where there was nothing else occurring in the other programs. I had come, I gotten stagnant. I come into ACA and it was like I had never been in program before. All the stuff just started changing, opening up. Doors start, doors I didn't even know existed started swinging open. I started being able to 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 look back and realize that cause and effect. And as soon as I started analyzing, seeing cause and effect, the effect no longer had effect. You know, we talk about the things that affected us uh, as a child no longer affect us as an adult. And it's true. It actually happens. When I start to acknowledge what happened as a child and realize what the cause and effect was as an adult, it no longer affects me. You know, I was constantly feeling, I'm not tense, but like on guard protecting myself, always looking out. Now, I rarely feel my body tense up. I rarely feel my back tense up. You know, life has gotten, I don't want to say easier, but I, I maneuver, I don't maneuver. I can, I go through life a lot easier. You know, I, I, I feel, I don't feel like I need an agenda when I talk to people. I don't feel like I need to have a have to I I'm super village villager. <laughs> village village yeah whatever. <laughs> I basically watch people figure out where they're going, what they need to do because I had to do it my stepdad. Who's coming home today? The drunk, the anger, what? So I do that naturally now with everyone. You know, what's your mood like? If I say this, do you react this way? If I say this, do you react that way? Okay, how do I keep you on the good side as far as the bad side? Well, you know what? That was a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of effort. I don't have to do that anymore. I just simply talk to people. And what I've discovered is the people who have a problem with me, I have a good day. The people who don't have a problem with me, let's hang out. Okay? And as we hang out and learn more and more about each other, and suddenly I'm having conversations with people that used to be like, you know, let me fix you. And after I fix you, we hang up the phone. And then I never hear from you again. Now I'm having my friends call me up and basically say, hey, Bill, hey, how you doing? And two hours later, I'm hanging up the phone. Three hours later, I'm hanging up the phone. You know, I've got, I've actually started doing something else. I never made myself available to people because the worst thing that could possibly happen is if you say, ask someone to do something and they say no, I'm crushed. Because, again, I'm being abandoned. And that's my biggest fear. Now, I'm not worried about that anymore. You know, someone says they can't do something. It's because they can't. It's not because they're rejecting me. It's not because they don't like me. It's because they're just not available. I don't take it on. It's not about me anymore. It's not about me and what I can do and what I can't do. It's just simply that it is what it is. They can't be there. If they can, they can't. You know, and what I also started doing, a lot of my friends moved out to the country, throughout the country. And what I've done now is on my vacations, I'll call my friend up and say, hey, listen, can I come visit? Can I get on a plane and come visit and just hang out with you for a week? And I get on a plane and I hang out with them for a week. And my friends are so grateful because 
I was never emotionally available like that before. And now I'm sitting down with him and we're just hanging out for a week. And it's intense. It's intense in the sense that I am making myself emotionally available to them so they can be emotionally available to me. And I'm making that emotional connection that I wasn't making before. And that's a wonderful thing. My friends look out for me. They text me. They email me. They make sure everything is going okay. And I make sure everything's going okay. And, I, and when they talk to me, I just listen. That's all I have to do is listen. I don't have to do anything else. I'm letting them be heard. And they're letting me be heard. And I'm not trying to fix me. And I'm not trying to fix them unless I ask. If my friends call me up in a guy's situation, I ask them, do you want, I've learned to say, well, do you want me to say anything? And they'll go, yes. And I'll go, okay. And then I try to uh, couch it in such a way where I'm not trying to fix them. I'm just making a suggestion that I think might or might not work. And then they can do whatever they want with it. So this program has basically led me to a lot of solutions. And that prison I've kept myself in for all these years to try to protect myself, which all isolated me and actually re-injured me and basically isolated me again and basically had people abandon me all over again because I was abandoning myself. That's not happening anymore. I mean, it happened. Well, it happens, but not to the, to the, to the degree it used to happen. Now I catch myself. Now I, I don't let it go as far as it used to. I mean, I still make mistakes. I still have problems. I still have issues, but never to the degree that it was to be before. I don't hate myself. I like the guy in the mirror, you know, all these things that I used to basically not want. Yeah. You know, I'm okay with, you know, my relationships with, you know, I'm talking about relationships because that's what it's about. Healthy relationships. You know, um, I haven't figured out everything yet. <laughs> Who has? Who can? Who does? But my life is so much better. I, I don't stress as much. I, I, I don't worry. I worry, but I, I, it's not the worry that used to keep me up at night. It's not the fear of that. I, I don't sit there and replay conversations over and over again to figure out there's a better way to have that conversation. Was there something I could have said differently? Was there something else I could say? Now I just simply go, oh, okay, whoops, <laughs> and let it go. I don't have to sit there and, and, and rehash a conversation five times. And I don't have the future trip where I have a conversation in my head with somebody before I even have the conversation and already come to the conclusion that they're going, you know, and find myself resenting. <laughs> we haven't had the conversation, you know? So all those things are no longer happening, you know? And I, now I don't take things personally. Sometimes people are just having a bad day. And I'm just a target. It's not about me, you know? And I don't take it on. I don't have to take it on. So, what I'm going to suggest is, um, is this, uh, ACA has, has solved the problem. You know what? I am trying to move away from the uh, laundry list and move toward the promises. And what I do is each month with the promise, I get up in the morning and I repeat that promise to myself for a month. And then at the end of the month on that promise, I say to myself, how has how have I moved closer to that promise and further away from the um, the laundry list? That's my goal now. So there's there's what twelve promises, twelve months in a year. Works pretty good. Okay, and that's my goal in the ACA now. 
to move closer to their promises and further away from the laundry list. So my my theme is um, well, we could pick promise from the laundry list to the promises. How you're working that, moving that direction, or you can pick how you manage to repair relationships or strengthen relationships or however you want to talk about relationships. I think uh, both those topics are for why I came to ACA in the first place. Um, my name is Bill and I am so happy to have found this program. It has changed my life. Thank you.